0: 57 this uh episode we're going to be covering our top 10 of 2019 so as usual i'm joined by rob and this is basically our aggregated lists. we both come up with a top 15 list of albums score them and then add them together so this list doesn't necessarily reflect either our individual taste but it's more me and rob always
1: end up with more or less the same albums on it so So far, this is still working out. (laughs) Yeah, and I think the thing we've found this year is that there was more disagreement sort of towards the bottom of our list because there was so much stuff this year and I hated leaving off loads of great albums. But particularly when we get into the top five, they're pretty much all things that both of us picked and put pretty highly.
0: Yeah, I don't think with any, we have a real disagreement uh, about in here. So yeah, to to kick it off, at number 10, we have the seventh album by the UK Funeral Doom band, Esoteric, and this is A Epiric Existence released on Seasons of Mist. So Esoteric, if you've never come across them, are a band that do extremely long-form music. Their last three albums have been double albums of normally around the 100-minute mark, and their their kind of signature style is this incredibly weird, swirling expanse of, like, death metal dragged out to the absolute
1: long form. Mm. And this sort of... It opens like you'd imagine Esoteric 2. It opens up with a 27-minute song, Descent, (laughs) and it it has these swirling effects that come in, and then it hits you with these incredibly powerful, huge chords, which aren't quite power chords, are something slightly different. They have the weight and the punch to them you expect from death metal, but there's an almost psychedelic, weird edge to them. And throughout the entire album, you have that sort of mix of... Some songs and some moments that sound like um, like Culmination, that has riffs that could come from Morbid Angel or something in it, but then have these really soft segments as well, and sort of takes the, those two different styles of Funeral doom, particularly the... And it's structured in sort of halves, in a way, although I didn't really listen to it like that. It's got the first half, which has that more melodic thing that someone like Bellwitch might do, and then the second half has a lot more of the really heavy stuff, which is broken up by a sort of um, about four and a half minute instrumental in the middle. Yes, So yeah. it, it's got a nice structure to it, despite being 98 minutes long. It is well structured, and I think one of the best in terms of structure. It doesn't do the thing that some funeral bands, and East Terry have done this before, where it just fades into <laughs> static.
0: Yeah, their last album was a particular culprit for that. And I
1: think the, one of the things they've done really nicely on this is that they've used those effects. And even on the first song, On Descent, when you get these big chords come in, in between them there's these effects and these sounds going, this reverb, and they use that to create incredible suspense throughout the album. Like mm. You're always waiting for the next note to hit or that next change, and they've, they've really honed the art of using those weird effects on this. I think the the band they put me in mind
0: of, although they, they do do things differently, is they have a lot of Evokan's kind of atmosphere, that mm. kind of really foreboding, yet still being brutal uh, most of the time, the difference between Evokan and Esoteric is Esoteric just go even more long-form and even more prog with it, whereas Evokan are quite sort of traditional with their 3 in Something we should mention with it as well is Greg Chandler, the vocalist, is just incredible. As a mm. death metal vocalist or death-slash-black-metal kind of style vocalist, the guy is just amazing. He can hold notes for so long which works perfectly when you have these moments where it's going to take ten seconds for a chord to change he will bridge that gap with an incredible scream.
1: You have so much space and that gives him like particularly some of the screams on this like the slightly higher pitched screams are incredible. You hear them right from the beginning on the descent which Mm. where I was like right I get this. Incredible sort of anguished sounds which feeds into that atmosphere that Funeral Doom can create of just sort of crushing melancholy, like the weight of it and the, the pain of it, you can feel that and there's these huge moments like in Culmination where there's this sort of static and anticipation and then there's these like huge scream and then almost gent-like notes, like super low guitars and dissonance over that and I really like that it's sort of, it's pushing the guitars, Funeral Doom as such a sort of extreme subset of heavy metal, is pushing guitars into doing things they never do, have done before yeah, and yeah. they're using them in a completely different way um, but yeah absolutely Greg Chandler is an amazing vocalist <laughs> and his range between the super low gutturals and the those sort of like shrieks is incredible the, the other
0: thing so this is their first album since 2011 and in 2011 uh, guitarist Jim Lerland joined the band and it added a really interesting element to their sound because they started doing lead guitar work in their stuff mm. previously EC Tech's stuff would never have anything approaching a solo But what Jim Nolan adds to the band is these amazing sections where they will spend about three minutes building up into a guitar solo with like a couple of cool lead notes eventually building into a massive shred. And they would just take that a length of time to get there. So I think there's one towards the end of Rotting and Dereliction where it's like absolute shred guitar over Funeral Doom. And it
1: it kind of works, but it's rare for this genre. Yes, some of the melodic guitar work of this is one of the some of the best parts of it actually because it's got that sort of like classic funeral doom staple of you know really long sort of high notes over the top giving that atmosphere But yeah then it just has shredding sections and you think this actually really works because it drives home those contrasts between like those heavier but still really slow um, and those you know much slower softer moments and it brings that intensity with it it uses those guitar solos to drive those really high moments. Yeah, just Esoteric are a band who have really
0: honed their craft and I think are still kind of pushing boundaries. Like, I think, um, I only know their latest three albums well, but I think Descent's like the longest song they've ever written. And the fact that they've got to this point in their career where they can comfortably deal with a half-hour-long track and not make it feel dragged out or bloated is
1: kind of incredible. Definitely. It, It feels to me like it's... Funeral Doom is sort of old enough now. It's reaching that stage where bands like Esoteric, who've been doing it since you know 1992, are taking all of these elements of different ways that people have explored Funeral Doom and pulling it together into one package. And I think that's very true of the best metal around at the moment, or at least the metal that we like. A lot of the stuff on this list is going to be things where people have taken all the different ways you can explore a genre and pulled it together and managed to actually integrate it into something that makes sense. Yeah, this isn't yeah. just you know you know the first time you hear Funeral Doom and you think. How do people play that slow? How do you create that incredible atmosphere? It's taking all of those different approaches to creating it and pulling it together. So it almost makes me think of like progressive funeral doom, but only progressive within the genre of funeral doom, which is very niche. Uh, it, it, actually, that descriptor is how
0: I would describe esoteric, because I do think they, they have something where... They don't sound quite like Belwic;h They don't sound no. quite like Evoken or or even like the older kind of like Disembowelment Winter kind of mm. stuff. They do sound somewhat apart from everyone else I can think yeah. of in the genre. Um, yeah, and just they are one of my particular favourites, and I'm so happy that after an eight year wait, mm. it didn't disappoint. Like, yeah, yeah, a really brilliant album.
1: Yeah, it's it's one of those as well that I think's hard to comment on because. You know, I think it was out in September. Was it released? Yes, sometime and, um, like that. You know, being about 100 minutes long, I definitely haven't listened to it enough <laughs> at this no. point because it takes so long to finish the album. But that's one of the joys of funeral doom is that it will take you ages to get it, and then when you get it, you've got this huge chunk of music that, you know, all makes sense to you. <laughs> Number nine on our list is Howling Sycamore with Seven Pathways to Annihilation. Howling Sycamore we covered last year. Uh, they were formed in 2016 and this is their second album. Um, Howling Sycamore is a sort of power trio project from Hannes Grossman on drums, David Tiso on um, guitar, bass, piano and baritone ukulele, apparently. <laughs> Isn't that just a guitar? <laughs> That's what I would have thought. Um, and Jason McMaster on vocals. So Howling Sycamore are a really weird project um, who combine a sort of bizarre like melodic variant of bits of black metal and progressive metal with saxophones and power metal traditional heavy metal style vocals um and they released their first album last year which was a really interesting one and then they've sort of done in my mind the same thing again but i really love the thing that they do yeah um, yeah <laughs> if anything this is i think a slightly more mature distillation of what they do like this sort of unique mosaic of guitar parts none of which sound particularly aggressive but somehow create this slightly unnerving atmosphere with these incredibly charismatic vocals over the top insanely energetic drums which somehow make it sound way heavier than it should be Um, and then all of these additional elements like solos and the saxophone which here is only on the final song but I think the songwriting has improved slightly even if it's not as novel at this point, so I think that might be one of those things. It's just they've done the same thing again, and I really like it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think for me, I I didn't
0: include this that highly on my list this time around, just because I think last year it had the surprise mm-hmm. if you're like this is totally unique music, and last year like this is I, I've never heard this before. Whereas as you say, the sound was like you've sort of done it again. Doesn't stop it being brilliant. There is some amazingly like catchy and memorable stuff like. The Mm. first track, Mastering Fire, just has a brilliant, essentially, power metal chorus. Mm. But with a lot of this stuff, it kind of does a lot of classic power metal, classic heavy metal tropes. But with a slight weirdness injected, they're kind of... A lot of the riffs will be in a slightly odd timing, or Mm. the chord productions will be like very atypical for the genre. And that's where Jason McMaster's skill that he honed in Watchtower comes in, where he can scream over a song in... like. 9-8, 9-8, and it sounds totally yeah. normal. Yeah.
1: Like, w- one of the things I think that's actually really a noticeable improvement, um, having listened to this one a lot, is that the vocal lines and phrasing are much better developed than they were on the yes, last album. Yeah, the, the vocals on the last album had moments of awkwardness,
0: moments where mm. he was trying to fit too many words over in, like in too weird a melody over too weird a chord.
1: Yeah, whereas there's things like this, so there's um, sort of an interlude in Departure, which is building up into the second half of the song. And some of the vocal phrases there, because the times signatures underneath are weird and there's so much weird instrumentation, they've managed to fit into this groove where Jason can work out how you structure the lyrics around that. And some of the things he does with that is incredible. Like He reaches these incredible emotional highs over something that's really weird to get your head around. And he works as this sort of amazing guide to how bizarre the underlying music is. But it never quite sounds like that because he's able to bring you through um, and it's just as sort of majestic as it ever was. There's these amazing sort of um, dual-tracking harmonies that are all over it. There's incredibly long-held notes and screams and mixing between the screams and the like much clearer power metal, traditional heavy metal vocals. Uh, he's done an amazing job on this. The vocals are incredible. The other thing I quite liked about the
0: sound is it had a bit more of what I would see as David Tiso's signature guitar style. There was a mm. few more moments where it was like, that's that's an FL Duaf chord band in yeah, places. It yeah. was like I think when the first album came out, he was quite clearly trying to not be doing FL Duaf again. Whereas now he's he's done a couple he's got a couple of albums under his belt outside that band. And I think mm. he's happy to draw on that pool of influence again, which is is because nice, um so he was also the main songwriter for uh Karen Crisis' Gospel of Witches mm. album that came out this year. And that doesn't have any FL duafism, yeah. so it's nice that like, this is clearly an outlet where this is very much what he wants to be doing, whereas that's a project where he's serving his wife's like sort of lyrical and vocal content.
1: yeah, and and he creates soundscapes that I don't think anyone else can even get close to. these mm. sort of interlocking patterns of pretty clean guitars doing these slightly weird chords in slightly weird time signatures, but nothing insanely complicated. And it, I was reading one review of it, which was sort of saying, "Well, none of the riffing's aggressive," and I don't like that. And I yeah. kind of think, like, I understand why people might not get on with that, but I think that's one of the things that makes Hanging Sicker more amazing. Is if you were to strip away any part of it, like particularly the guitars, which form this mosaic, none of it's particularly aggressive at all. And but I think that that was also quite true of like especially later of you Duarte. Like yeah. a lot of
0: the aggression in that was from the drumming and vocal performances. Yes. Where and this this holds some of that. And actually, some of the solos have more of it. We're getting in, yeah. like, guests, like, because David Hughes has never been a lead guitarist, like a, like a proper, you know, shreddy soloist. So he's got people like Marty Friedman's on one of the tracks, yeah. Kevin Huffmigall, who is incredible, yeah. um, his work on Dysrhythmia's Disrhythmia, album this year. Mm. If you want to hear properly mind-blowing instrumental music, like, yeah, the guy
1: is brilliant to so that kind of stuff. But I think you've on the fascinating thing there is that I think the thing that makes this heavy is almost entirely the drums. Um, mm. So like, Hannes Grossman's performance is remarkable. Like, theres I mean, all of his performances are really good. He's <laughs> an incredibly good drummer, but some of the things he does here are really interesting. So there's so many sort of moments where you've got like the interlocking melodies of guitars. You see that a lot on Departure. And then a drum groove will come over the top which will chop and change and completely change the feel of it. It will go from blast beats to really fast double kicks to much groovier sort of grooves on the drums and that makes it feel so much more intense and in your face it will speed up a riff which didn't sound like it was going to be fast and suddenly there's a blast beat under it and it feels really sort of out there and then you get hit by these huge majestic vocals and it makes it feel so sort of All-consuming, despite not being heavy, it feels almost intense as opposed to heavy. I know, I've been going on about this for
0: a while. I think Hannes Grossman is one of those figures that needs to be heralded as one of the proper leading lights of modern extreme metal. Mm. To put it in context, I I can't remember the exact figure now. He's recorded something like 15 albums in the last two years as a drummer. (laughs) One of which is a solo album, which he, he recorded all the bass and... And rhythm guitar as well. Like yeah. the the man is an absolute machine. And and a lot of these albums we've we've said are like like our last year's top ten had two albums he was <laughs> on. In it. Uh, I think this is the only Hannis Grossman one in yeah, our top ten is. this year. But yeah, the, the guy and they're, they're all so different. Like Howling Sycamore sounds nothing like Alkaloid. Um, mm. I mean, his solo album did sound quite a lot like Alkaloid. But even so, Alkaloid's a weird enough beast that. Yeah, it's amazing. You can fit
1: these different styles. Yeah. And then I suppose, like, something that I immediately noticed after a little while listening to this album is the, the saxophone's not really there at the beginning. Yes. It only comes in on the sort of mammoth 10 minute closer, which is Sorceress, which is, I think, possibly the best song on the album. I, it was, this, that's the thing. I, I kind of, I love that they didn't need to use the
0: saxophone because initially in the first album, I really loved the saxophone. But when it comes in in Sorcerer at the end, you're
1: like, this.
0: Does improve it. It yeah. is very good with the saxophone. Yeah. And, um,
1: Bruce Lamont is back from the first album playing saxophone, and it it just adds so much texture to everything with this huge build up as well. Because you have sort of halfway through the song, after all these you know, um, chopping and changing drum parts and mosaic guitar parts, you get this one sort of big prog riff that ties the whole thing back together for the final half of the song. And then you have these massive sax parts that go over that, and they're just sort of spellbinding. You know, they mm. have that thing that. When Ishan first started using Sax with Jürgen on things like After, it has that sort of effect of you're just sort of, so many textures are happening and it all somehow fits together into this weird esoteric bundle. Yeah, um, I I like that they didn't have to rely on it as sort of a gimmick, but it does work so well with their sound. It fits with this weird sort of avant-garde approach to not really being any genre of metal, but at the same time being all of them that they have. Um so yeah the, uh, awesome I'd love to see
0: more of it. Yeah exactly. Uh do you did you hear the one interesting thing about the the album covers? Uh, you t- did tell me this. did the yeah, the uh... very so the first album cover howling sycamore featured like a ritual taking pl- place in front of like kind of a white dying tree. The new cover is a figure underneath a lightning strike. And uh, I think David Tiso pointed out in an interview that the two can basically be mapped onto each other. Yeah. And you turn the lightning strike the other way up, <laughs> which I thought was a really cool, like kind of symmetry between the covers. And one's red and one's blue. They just yeah. sit really nicely together. I like a kind of. I like a band with a kind of consistent art theme. Definitely, that isn't as silly as, say, the Iron Maiden, <laughs> with just like Eddie doing something stupid in every picture. Yeah, yeah.
1: Actually, creating works of art along a theme rather than a mascot. <laughs> <So> just... <laughs> yeah, I think. Um,
0: I think we said this last year about this band. It's probably going to be the most divisive one. I think m- most of you will probably just hate this. The, the vocals are a hard sell. Yeah, but they are. They are technically brilliant. Yeah. There, there is no debating that much, at least.
1: Yeah, and I think I, I found the vocal passages in this particular like super emotional. Like he brings on mm. these incredible journeys. Um, there's things like on uh, in, uh, initiation. Yeah, there's this bit where there's this big break, and then he just thinks I witnessed levitation of my soul, and then gets right back into it. And I love that. Like it's really silly, but like it really makes you feel. Um, yeah,
0: he, he, like the thing we didn't touch on is the lyrics are really. Weird and out there, yeah. that they're, they're, they're another element where you're like just to do that in a kind of traditional heavy metal style is really impressive, yeah. because Just getting his tongue around half of it, you're like <laughs> that, I,
1: I don't know how you say these sentences, <laughs> no. Or. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really it's really nice to see that Howling Sycamore are going strong and that they've got another album out super quickly, pulled it together, like it's you know it's it's in a, in a sense more of the same but it's still really good like they haven't dropped the ball at all there's still really good songwriting here amazing work from all the musicians and I'm really excited to see what they've got next yeah yeah
2: all the days gone wrong and I forgive
0: Standing album. This is quite a late, late in the year release, and and kind of a make or break one for these guys. This is Nile's ninth album, Vile Niotic Rights, uh, released on Nuclear Blast. So, if you missed the sort of brief drama around this Nile lost long-standing vocalist Dallas Toller Wade, um, I think towards the end of last year, and replaced him with uh, Brian Kingsland uh, as vocalist and guitarist for the band. As Dallas, like, especially in the later Niall albums, very much became the lead vocalist, mm. This, I mean, I myself included, thought that might be the end of Niall's run of extreme quality. But actually here, I think they've put out the best album they have in over a decade since... Uh, I think for me, I'm not quite sure whether this tops uh, Those Whom the Gods Detest. But I've said many times, I think Niall are one of the most consistently interesting bands in death metal... Mm. And once again, they have dropped an almost hour-long slab of monumentally complex tech death that is still like immensely atmospheric as well as punishing throughout and still remains as unique as ever.
1: Yeah, it feels sort of like a theatrical tour of mystical brutality. Um, and the, the, <laughs> well put. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, the, the thing that I really liked about this is that Nile have always added sort of Samples and interesting instruments that give you that sort of uh, Middle Eastern, North American, uh, North African sort of ambiance to their music. But in this one, I feel like they've honed that, including it to a T. Yeah. Like some of the songs on this um, have there's like Lord of the Rings bit sampled. There's Godzilla parts sampled, and the samples fit in so nicely. Um, sometimes melding with the vocals that they're doing. The Lord of the Rings bit really nicely fits in with these like. Uh, really heavy like chugging guitars and like really blasting snare drum which builds up over that to bring it back in um, and it's it's like a really fascinating how they've bring in that extreme technicality that is still there you know like the speed of these riffs is incredible and yet at the same time they're able to bring in all of this sort of like theatrical mysticism. And they've really integrated that really well on this album. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's something I know is going to be overstated with this band because
0: like we always go on about it. But George Klyas is fucking incredible yeah. on the drums. Yeah. Like, you just, any track of this, if you just ignore everything going on and pay attention to what the drums are doing, the drum fills are properly incredible at mm. every moment. And it doesn't matter whether it's a slow or fast riff, he finds something interesting to do at every
1: moment of this album. Yeah, and, and he can do the sort of like slow down stuff where it's loads of big toms that sounds like it's coming out of ancient Egypt. And then he can do the, when they've got the really heavy breakdowns, of which there are quite a lot on this album that I really like. He does that like trademark George Clive's thing of just those blisteringly fast double kicks underneath it. Yeah. But like holding that snare back as long as he possibly can, which makes it feel at once fast but also slow because you're sort of never getting to two of the bar. You're just constantly assaulted with these double kicks, but it never quite resolves itself. Which makes those breakdowns feel so heavy. Yeah, yeah, and the guitar work, like Carl Sanders, is just such a
0: master guitarist at this point. It's funny because I never really think of Nile as as a tech death band, but they must be because. Mm. So, so you compare this to Unfathomable Ruinations album that came out this year. Absolutely brilliant tech death, but actually there you notice it's technical as hell. Yeah, this Nile album is way more technical. You don't notice it because it's just really, really good riffs and really atmospheric, but if you ever stop to look at anything happening, it is all so monumentally complex and fast and, yeah, Yeah. I, I was just blown away by it. I think, I don't know why
1: I noticed it so much more on this album than I have on any of their last few but Some of it's so short-lived as well. Like If you look at Snake Pit Mating Frenzy, which I love <laughs> the name of, some of the solos on that are so crazy, but they're so quick, and they're just sort of like this insanely quick blistering solo, and then it's done, and then you've just moved on, and there's suddenly another like really interesting, incredibly fast riff that you're paying attention to. So it all just sort of hits you, and then it's gone, and then you're on a new interesting thing. It keeps moving until they slow down for these incredibly heavy breakdowns, which take your attention immediately. Yeah, yeah. Um to to address the kind
0: of lineup change, uh, Brian, who I think is taking the kind of lead vocal position in this, does a very good Dallas Toller-Wade impression. Yeah. He sounds if no one if I had no idea Dallas had left, I could have been convinced it was the same guy still. <laughs> I'd argue he's not quite as good. That is the only thing this album like maybe doesn't have over some of his predecessors. And the vocals, they're absolutely excellent throughout. But then maybe not the ten out of ten they were on some yeah. of the previous. Like maybe yeah. a nine out of ten now. Got,
1: so yeah, it's there's there's some differences in there that you can find as well. So like it's got he's got a slightly more modern sounding death metal vocal of, yeah. in my mind. And there's some there's more sort of higher screams on this, like the album intros of quite a few of these slightly higher end screams, which is which Niall use, but I found there were more of them on this album. Um and there's certainly bits where I really like what they've done with it. So there's some parts where they'll make the vocals sound really far away with loads of reverb, like it's coming from a great distance, and it builds up with this majesty. And I really like how they've done that. Um watching some of the live videos it looks really cool because they split the vocals three ways. While Brian Kingsland is taking on the main part of the vocals. Carl Sanders is there doing his sort of indistinguishably low, like guttural noise. Um, and Brad Parris on bass is also doing a bunch of the vocals. So, yes, yeah. live, this looks really cool, particularly for the big sort of chanting sections. You get all three of them doing vocals at the same time, which is amazing. And I've had friends who have
0: witnessed this band live with this lineup playing these songs recently. So, it holds up as great as ever. Niall yeah. is still the absolute unit, they always mm. have been. Interesting to see as well, Carl is not the sole writer on this album. Mm. There's a couple of tracks he didn't have a hand in at all. For example, um, the amazingly titled The Oxford Handbook of Savage Genocidal Warfare. And um, I think Brian himself is the, the sole writer on uh, track several, seven, Revel in Their Suffering, which is, is really yeah. cool because other people are now coming into Nile and being able to fit with the kind of template
2: mm.
1: Carl put down so many years ago. And that's one of those interesting things, like you were saying at the beginning, is that no one does Nile. No one's managed to copy Nile. If you look at a band like Behemoth, for example, like another huge metal band that are out there, there's plenty of bands who do a similar enough thing. Yeah, no yeah. one's managed to do what Nile do. They can't create that atmosphere. No, you you hear a Nile riff and you immediately know it's Nile straight away. Yeah, I, I mean, with
0: this album, I think they are really hitting that point for me where they should be held up as the absolute like top pantheon of death metal. I think because mm. it's their ninth album. I would argue probably six of which albums are proper masterpieces. Mm. And there's not many other bands that have quite that legacy. That You know, no. you've got no. a few kind of like old guard like Cannibal Corpse or Morbid Angel where I'd argue there's a similar number of absolute classics in their catalogue. But they're few and far between. Yeah. Like,
1: and Nile is still one of those bands that, you know, you'd show it to someone and they'd be like, oh, what the fuck is that? Like, it's <laughs> it's so intense and it's so in your face and... Um, It's still almost like shocking to listen to, and I love that it still feels fresh and aggressive and heavy. And uh, for a band who've been going since the 90s, still being at the forefront of pushing technicality. Yeah.
0: Not just like still writing good songs. Like they are genuinely still pushing the boat out. The other thing I sort of noticed about this album, and I think this is true of most of their stuff, is there's loads of little bits they add in. You mentioned before with samples and so on, but also elements of acoustic guitar will be sat in with some of the heavier riffing. Or just like choir or all of chanting elements in the background. With a lot of bands, if you put that over a death metal track, you'd be like, oh, that was an interesting thing to add there. With Nile, you're just like, okay, that's part of the sound. I yeah. just accept that's yeah.
1: gonna be there. But it's, it's really inventive. It's there's so much of it and it's so well integrated into the album, you barely notice it. It forms part of that atmosphere. And then when you sit to unpick it, you realize there's so much that's added on top of, you know, these um uh, rock solid drums and guitars and the incredible bass playing as well, on top of that, there's so many extra elements. You know, there's so much attention to detail and craft on this album. It's sort of spellbinding how they came up with all these ideas.
0: Well, I just got the disc out earlier and pointed out to Rob, like, I sort of messed up because I got this quite late in the year. I've never gone through the lyric book, and Carl Sanders has done the thing he's done with many in the past, of writing a basic novel explaining his lyrical decisions on every track. And again, a great case of buying the physical media because... Mm. There's so much there if you want to unpack more information about any of these songs. And, it, you know, yet another thing elevating them above a lot of the tech, therefore more extreme metal crowd, it's just their lyrical craft is yeah. absolutely brilliant on top of everything else. In a place where it wouldn't... Like, this this album
1: could have total crap lyrics and it wouldn't hold it back, but it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's always the thing, like, Nile, are that band, you know, they do Ancient Egypt. And you'd think that at some point... Like, it would become some form of gimmick, like, you know, pirate metal bands or anything like that. But somehow, Carl Sanders, like, he clearly loves this stuff. Like, it's clearly a huge passion for him. And he just brings interesting things forwards each time. Reading the lyrics is, you know, it's like reading history, but in a really interesting way. He's genuinely telling you interesting stories and interesting things about a society. It's not just a gimmick that's used to sell the band. It's actual fascination and love.
0: Number seven, we have a band which were totally new to me earlier this year and I still know absolutely nothing about. This is the Avantgarde Music release Ulvik with Volume 1 and 2. So I've slightly cheated here. Volume 1 technically came out in 2018, but I bought them as a double album and I think the double album is the great way to listen to it, so I'm mm. counting it as one, plus it's only about an hour long. So all we know about this band is they're from British Columbia and are signed to avant Music. Beyond that, me and Robin not being able to find out any more information. No. Um, and it kind of works with what they are. So this is incredibly atmospheric black metal. But atmospheric black metal done on the very short form end of things. So each uh, each volume is about 30 or so minutes long mm. and contains between 10 and 7 short tracks where they're just, just doing an idea and then moving on to the next one. They, a lot of their stuff is it's kind of atmospheric stuff really immediate stuff just happens and by virtue of adding like i believe there's a lot of cello on this um and it's not too focused on vocals it's way, way more focused on cool guitar noises it just has a sound which immediately struck me as unique i can't i can't really put my finger on exactly why they don't sound like every other atmospheric black metal band but they don't. They're just kind of immediately cool.
1: I think part of it is the compositional element you were talking about. In that when I, was, well, I first listened to these albums through just as, and just as entire albums. Mm. I didn't sort of look at each bit. And then when I went to do the sort of breakdown and look at each section of it, I realised, why well, it's well, it split into these three and four minute songs. Or even two minutes on a lot of them. There's only, I think, one eight minute song. And that's the longest thing over an hour of sort of atmospheric black metal. Which is quite weird. And as you say, when you listen to each song, it's sort of there's often you know the build up, there's the thing that happens, there's the central idea, that atmosphere, those sort of ultimate melody that's being portrayed through the song, and then the song's done. There's not a single minute of wasted space, yeah. Yeah, in a genre where it's so easy to do like a 10 minute build up to something, and in this time they've done three songs and they've given you three sort of like views into the atmosphere of the world they're trying to create through these albums. You're getting so much for the time that you put in, which, yeah, I I thought was a really strong selling point. Like, you can put on four minutes and you can have this amazing four-minute atmospheric journey and it just works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they're a
0: band who never get lost in that idea of just creating a melody and being like, oh, this is quite nice, we'll drag this out. They never do that. It's always very to the point, very quick. The, The album all has this kind of just Slight kind of melancholy to it, but also it's slightly creepy. It's not, it yeah. doesn't fall into the camp of like the Alcest kind of end of atmospheric black metal where it's all quite uplifting. This is still quite sinister.
1: Yeah, it's, um, so I've, I've <laughs> for a lot of the bands, I've been trying to do like a one sentence description of their sounds. And what I got for Ulvik was a, um, a laser focused, um, atmospheric soundscapes of a bleak yet majestic world. And I think that's the sort of thing that I got from it. Because like they describe it as an audiovisual project. So the, the album covers on this are really quite striking. Yeah. Um, the album cover for Volume 1 in particular, it's got this sort of um, skull with antlers of some kind of branches on a beach. But the colour palettes of these muted blues and greys, which is the same on Volume 2, which is of a riverbank, are really striking. Yeah. And they yeah. fit the atmosphere of the music so well. But it is that idea of, like, there's this bleakness and underlying, like, it feels as if something has been lost and destroyed in some way, but the idea that that thing perhaps once was amazing and majestic, it gets that sense across while I'm listening to it, and that's with the visuals as well, so that's sort of something to go off, but it fits really nicely with just those two images, which are simple, but really convey the message of the album. Yeah, you're quite... I can't even if I hadn't clocked that so much, but, like, the album
0: covers do just really fit... Very very well, and they're really simple, but they just yeah. work. They, 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 there's a lot about this band where it is just not nothing feels that out of the ordinary, but they've just done it very mm. very well, and it, by virtue of that, it feels slightly unique. And yeah, a good fit for the the label. Like this is definitely an avant-garde music release. Mm. Like this is one of those. Like this is not this has not got any obvious selling points other than I'd highly advise anyone goes and gives it a go without much information it is just yeah. sit down and listen to it for five minutes if it doesn't grab you in that it probably won't so i think for me i i love this band for about a minute in i think yeah. i i started playing the first track on volume two and was just like
1: immediately struck by it being brilliant and i couldn't really tell you why it was so different to anything else mm. there's there's so much subtlety to it i think is the thing like all of those all of these little things that add up like the vocal dynamics on it so on sun on volume two the vocals, these sort of half vocals start out super background, like you mm. can barely hear them, like it's mostly the reverb from it. But by the end of like a not particularly long song, they're in the foreground and they're these properly like heavy black metal vocals. And it's that gradual transition over not a particularly long period of time, but still feels like the right length of time. Mm. So there's all of these little subtleties to it, which you wouldn't really notice, particularly if you're just sort of absorbing the soundtrack when you're really paying attention there's all of these little decisions that have been made in it which really adds to that immersion yeah yeah and it was it was one of those weird albums as well where i think
0: on first listening i had to question at the end of it like did i have any vocals on like because because they they kind of come and go so frequently you'll get whole six minutes passages without any oh and other points they're mixed so background um, similarly to like a band like Bluetooth Nord, where yes. the vocals are not the important bit of it, mm. but
1: they do add an interesting dynamic when they're there. Yeah, the vocals on this really reminded me of this year's Bluetooth Snord as well. And, you know, parts of it, the way that they use the effects around it, it almost sounds like the roar of the wind in the background. So you you can be like, is that is that an effect? Is that a sample or is that an actual vocal? But that fits really nicely into the idea, you know, they say that they're inspired by folklore esotericism, history, and the dramatic Canadian landscape. So the idea that the instruments, in this case the vocals, are blending in almost with an environmental sound is really nice. It feels super organic like that.
0: Yeah, and I like as well that they're a band that very much um, evoke the idea of the wilderness and the great outdoors without having ever to rely on just being quite folky. Mm. It's not really got a lot of a folk influence. Not one I was picking up immediately beyond... The virtue of having stuff like a cello or any stringed instruments can make stuff sound a little bit that way, I guess. But yeah, I think this is one where I would just highly advise going and give it a go, not knowing a lot. And it will, if it's going to be for you, it'll grab you quickly, I think.
1: Number six on our list uh, is a band I got really into this year. This is Weeping Sores, um, with their debut album, False Confession. Now Weeping Sores were formed in 2016 by Doug Moore and, and Stephen Schwegler, who are guitars, bass, and vocals for Doug, and drums for Stephen from Prion, who are a band we've talked about in the past. And then Gina, I'm really sorry if I mispronounced this surname. Again Grayson on violin and vocals, and she normally plays bass in Chernobyl. She's only a live basis one because they're normally they're,
0: yeah they're a one man studio project
1: normally. Cool. So I've been really into Prion because they're a really interesting take on just death metal going extremely weird um, and difficult to listen to. And when I found out they had a sort of more doomy project, I thought this was something really interesting to check out. And they do a really interesting sort of punishing and heartfeltly sad mix of death metal prog and doom and you can feel that unique influence of how prion write weird angular riffs that chop and change all the time but brought into something that's Far more sad and mournful. And the violin parts make a massive contribution to this album. They are the sort of central highlight where these huge melodies come in. But then it will have these bits that feel like they're a morbid angel riff or something like that. Really sort of reactive and fast drums as well, which give it this huge sense of energy. And then a dual vocal performance that I really like of Doug Moore doing these really low guttural vocals. And then Gina doing these higher like shrieks as well, which compound when you have these hugely emotional parts, when you've got these sort of softer guitars, heavy guitars, and your violin. You can then have these huge joint vocal attacks, which I really like. So it has some incredibly heavy riffs, weird choruses, and then these sort of haunting feelings from these huge violin melodies, which somehow sit over the top of, like, weird, dirty death metal and doom. Uh, Yeah, that that is a really good summary of this. I would also mention
0: this band. They they must have been a marketing nightmare, because... They're called Weeping Sores, which makes them sound like a grind band. But essentially, they're, they're a bunch of tech-deaf guys playing Doom yeah. <laughs> on Ivoid Hanger Records, which are mostly known for black metal. So just the whole... everything about them is is kind of... it's all coming from the wrong direction. But that kind of works with the sound, because although, yeah, as Rob said, they're essentially a Doom band, they still have a bit of that prion thing
1: going on, yeah. where...
0: The songs chop and change too quickly. They they're still hard to get your head around on first listen. Yeah.
1: I mean, if, when you start off with um, Whispering Secret Tongues, towards the end of it, you've got the violin that comes in and then you start to go, oh, right, this is weird. What's it doing here? And then it still does this thing where it will have riffs that change halfway through and jump into this other riff with these really fast drums and sort of really fast fills on it. And then it will slow down and go crushing again. And then you jump into um, Song of Embers and... Which barely has doesn't have anything heavy at the beginning, and it's just this sort of like post-rocky guitar, which goes on with this nice drum groove and doesn't feel like it's in a doom band or a death metal band, but more sort of like a groovy post-rock band. And then by the end of that, that also had a huge bunch of really heavy riffs and violin parts put into it. What I found interesting as well
0: is uh Doug Moore, I didn't even know was a guitarist. Because he's only no. he's, he's just the vocalist of Prion, but actually he him playing all the guitar and bass parts on this, like He's a very technically gifted guitarist. Like, yeah. There's no real virtuoso stuff, but the, this
1: riffing is difficult. Like uh, the drummer does not make anyone's life easy on this album. No, no, no. Like he's doing some. Steven's doing some amazing stuff on this. Where it, and he he gets those transitions so well. Like he'll be doing these really sort of fast, aggressive fills, and then it will just sort of cut into that like funeral doom almost thing, where you've got these really big hits. But he'll fill lots of space as well because this is, you know, such a small group. It's just the guitars, bass and drums, essentially, and your violins on top. He'll fill it with like loads of stuff around the floor toms while you've just got this sort of a couple of guitar passages that are going over the top. And he'll like bring you back in. He gives an energy to it, which you wouldn't really expect in a Doom project yeah, and the drum sounds not what you'd expect from a Doom project. The snare has like very little reverb on it. Like it's a re- it's a snare you'd expect to hear in a band with a lot of blast beats, mm. um, and it's not that. But it gives it this different feel. It's Doom from the perspective of almost technical death metal. Yeah, which, yeah, which feels really weird. And then it has that thing, which in places almost reminds me of like Sub Rosa, where it had these violin melodies, which then come and bring the whole thing together. And they make violins sound apocalyptic on this album, which is incredible. It gets these huge emotional highs and sounds really sad. But at the same time, the whole album sounds sort of dirty because of the guitar tone and the bass tone. And that somehow fits really nicely with that clean sound of the violin.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would argue, I'm sorry, not argue I would say for anyone like going into this one, if you've not heard it before, give it a few listens. Because... I had no idea what to make of it on first yeah. listen because it, 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 as I say like the whole it doesn't give you any clue what it's going to be and then so much of it is not the norm for whatever genre yeah. each individual riff is so yeah it took me a couple listens to get my head around but once you get in there it's clearly brilliant it clearly is like a very exciting and individual album and incredible for a debut. I know these people have like mm. some degree of musical history, but even
1: Prion are only on their what second album at this yeah, point. Yeah, and they're trying something that's completely different from anything that they've done in other projects. So um yeah it was it was one of those things where I saw it was there, I listened to it and on my first listen I was like, yeah, I fucking love this. <laughs> I've loved it all year. Like it just hits that particular spot for me of being simple in a sense, but then being incredibly complicated in what it tries to do and approaches a genre from a completely different direction from how anyone else has approached it, which results in something really unique and interesting. (laughs)
0: we have a band we've covered on the podcast relatively recently this is yet another uh, American band this is Shabdi with their second album Trembling and Sean which is an independent release this year so if you didn't hear us uh, I think I was on the listener suggestions episode we covered this one Shabdi do a cool blend of essentially black and death metal but with a real focus on an interesting rhythm section particularly led by uh, bass player Brendan Hayter with kind of kind of a cool but simplistic guitar and vocal approach, which is more in your traditional death metal camp. And it's just an album full of really to the point, riff-driven songs. It's just... Mm. Like, the main thing of going for it beyond anything else is just really good riffing throughout.
1: Yeah, it's it's got so many riffs. The way I sort of think about it is it takes from so many different styles of metal, takes some of the best riffs from it, and then pulls it in into a really interesting package. So there's... Riffs like on the song My Doppelganger, there's an Exodus style thrash riff on it, which they then will pair it with Satyracon style black metal riffs and then, like, you know, a Dying Fetus style brutal death metal riff in other parts of it and pull the whole thing together with strange, sort of proggy interludes. Yeah. Where yeah. they have got, you know, like, nothing incredibly complex on the guitar, but slightly weird guitar work and slightly weird chords on the guitar, which you wouldn't find in any of the bands that they clearly. You know, have taken inspiration from and taken some of those ideas from, which just creates this incredible package of interesting things, which is always right up in your face and always energetic and always giving you something new. Um, and as with anything that's new and interesting, it was mastered by Colin Marston. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. he's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but I think mean, Colin Marston is definitely
0: someone who has helped, it was a good choice for this album because, as I said before, the bass takes such an interesting approach in it. Um, like uh, I think I mentioned this in the previous time we, we covered it but the fact the bass player uses effects some different effects mm. on his bass throughout the album which is so rare in metal like there's moments where it's clearly like a lot of th- like a phaser or something going yeah. on and, and it really fits in with him doing these really cool lead passages like they, throughout like the first track uh, Shrouded and Veiled he's he always doing a more kind of melodic thing whereas the guitar is doing the straight riffing which is just a really fun way of approaching things and I think this is helped by virtue of them being like a power trio because it means the bass doesn't get drowned yeah. with that, you know, guitar on either side of the headphones kind of effect you get in a lot of this style of death metal.
1: Because there's that huge space, because it's three people, you know, the bass has that massive area that it has to occupy And they've taken that and run with it and made something that sounds so much more interesting than there'd been another guitar that was just doing a rhythm section or doing some leads. You know, there's parts in um, Below Decks, the final song, um, which is like where the, you know, it's harmonising with the tremolo picking on the guitar. And you're like, that's the bass that's keeping up there. What is happening?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting there. And the way it works is by virtue of getting a really good tone. If the bass had a slightly weedy tone, this wood this album wouldn't fly at all but it's got this really thick solid sound to it again it's clearly gone through a load of interesting effects loops because it's got a slight edge of distortion mm-hmm. but it's still quite clear like it, yeah it, it is just a bass tone i'd love to be able to replicate because it's it's really really cool and sits so nicely with your heavily down tuned distorted guitar and rob mentioned the closer below deck earlier that song as well is what really, I think, sells this album as being truly great. Because before it, you've got five really catchy, well-structured death metal songs. But then they do this like almost 12-minute closer, mm. where it's like, then the band really explore the full like, range of what they can do. And yeah, it's just that perfect cap for an album.
1: Yeah, and it, and it chops and changes between riffs that could fit in different styles. It's got the Tremello picked sort of introduction to it, which feels like it's a black metal riff, which jumps into a death metal riff with like this insane groove to it. And all of these riffs are really memorable. Just talking about it now, like riffs from it are popping into my head. Like each bit of it, you're just like, oh, that's a fantastic riff. That riff could lead a song by itself. And they've just shoved loads of them into a single song. Yeah. Each bit of it's yeah. so well crafted.
0: Yeah, and for for a kind of a very aggressive and heavy album, as you say, bits of it are popping up in my head as soon as I talk about it, and it is that kind of thing of you've made an album that is that brutal but still really memorable. Mm. Yeah, and I was I was thoroughly impressed with this, and I think this is this is a band where if they can keep this up, I could see them doing very well because this is essentially making extreme metal very accessible, but still carving out their own little niche of it again like like most of the bands we covered today they're kind of unique I I can't think of another Shabti
1: no 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 and um each And some of the instrumentation on this as well with the, the drums are fantastic. Like They've got such a good sound to them. They're so pounding. It's got some of the best double kick sounds or like some of the most intense double kick sounds since something like Vader's Litany. <laughs> it's just got that huge push to it. And there's some great drum grooves on this. Um, I can't remember it, but the name of the third track that it starts out with, this drum groove. And it's just a really cool little weird drum groove that you wouldn't expect to find in a black or death metal band. It's a little bit too groovy to be in any of those it feels, you know, the drummer's clearly spent some time doing things other than this style, doing prog rock or funk or something like that. Yeah. And it's brought in these other influences. I think, particularly in the drum
0: and bass work, there does seem to be stuff that's outside your standard metal playing. Mm. It all feels like a bit more inventive. Also, the drummer never hugely relies on going for the ultra-fast. He kind of leans more towards the mid-pace and just makes the bits where it goes heavy really, really heavy by yeah. hitting like a beast or having the production such that it sounds like he's hitting like that.
1: Yeah, um, but from what we've heard as well from watching some of the YouTube clips even though they aren't the mo- the best quality YouTube clips they look incredible live. Yeah, yeah. Um, and from what we've heard from people who've seen them, they are an incredible live act. So it feels like they can probably produce this sort of thing live. And as a power trio, there's something so powerful about being able to pull that off with just three people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Also, is why I'm, I've got high hopes for doing better in the future because it's just easier to tour as free. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it, like, it makes me think, like, well, if these guys are willing to you know, put the time in and so on, this could really take off as a project yeah. and I, I yeah I, I hope I'm really excited to seeing a third album see where they they develop this
2: to from here <laughs>
0: follow-up album I think both me and Rob were re- like, really had high hopes for on it, and I think both agree it doesn't disappoint. This is Crip Sermon with their second album, The Ruins of Fading Light, released on Dark Descent Records. Uh, so, Crip Sermon, kind of in that classic uh mass, which find a general vein of doom, but with their own slight take on it, which is just making it a bit more nasty and horrible mm. than most of the other bands in the genre.
1: Yeah, I think that's the interesting, unique thing about them, is that one of those things that I think you forget when you look back at particularly early Candlemass, if you look back at Epicus and Nightfall, is that those albums are super heavy, even today. And back when they were first released, those were incredibly heavy albums. Yeah. And yeah. Doom like this, this epic Doom, for me, works best when it's also really heavy. And Crypt Sermon do an interesting job of taking that sort of template, modernising it, and bringing in those few little more extreme influences, you know, there's moments where the singer Brooks Wilson will bring in some like slightly screamed parts. I mean, that really works. I wouldn't necessarily think it, you put a screamed singer in this for the whole thing. No, but I adding don't. in those segments, it really just it pushes it into ninth gear. Yeah, I think he just has like Brooke just has an ability
0: to turn up like almost the scratchiness on his voice yes. to make some of the deliveries that bit harsher rather than going for you like, you know, just like the Messiah style,
1: like yeah. everything's super clean, like really vibrato throughout. But it's it's from the first song, from um the Nark Templar, you've got a couple of those moments where it feels like almost death metal vocals and you sort of think yeah, like this is doom, but really heavy doom. But still with all the bombast that someone like Candlemas or Messiah would put into songs like
0: these. Yeah, so if you go back to our review of uh, their first album, Out of the Garden, uh, from about two years back, I think it was, we, we were really positive about that. But what I love about this album, and was really happy to see, is every sort of slight criticism we've had, they seem to have addressed and improved on And all the praise I've given to that album is done better here. Like, I actually, the other day, I listened to the two of them back to back and realised they've done that thing of almost slightly making the first sound redundant by
1: topping it (laughs) so This, Yeah, to me, this album feels much more confident. Like, they're so much more happy with the sound that they've got and how things work for them. They've got some of the faster songs, like the Ninth Templar, but then they've still got the slower bits as well. They're much more comfortable doing the mood and tempo changes that they've got in songs like Christ is Dead and The Snake Handler. The vocals vary and stand out more. They're more there. Brooke is more comfortable with all the things that he can do and he he uses it to great effect. The lead guitars are massively improved. There's some really great sort of melodic guitar work here. And the production's really nice. Like yeah, everything yeah. sounds clear and yet it still comes together into this huge like when the riffs hit, they really hit. You can feel that doom from them. You you touched on the thing actually I, think I most like about this album
0: is their their changes in pace, their changes in direction, like songs like Snake Handler or or particularly towards the closing of the album beneath the Torchfire Glare or mm. or the title track their songs will just go through way more movements. Whereas before it was more traditional verse chorus kind of structures. This album's got a bit less of that. There's still clear chorus moments. But actually say Ruins of Fading Light essentially has one chorus that it yeah. does right at the end of the song. <laughs> just the once.
1: But it's clearly the bit that would be the chorus. Mm. Like Yeah, there's there's so much like dynamics to this. And there's bits that remind me of other bits of metal as well as the harsh vocals. Like um Christ is Dead has got this sort of chant and then these acoustic guitars and then brings it into this like sort of heavy version of this riff which then has these sort of chanting over the top of it. It feels like a Bathory riff, mm. you know, like and it's got the exact sort of chance that Bathory would use but then it breaks it out into the doom. So it really feels like they've taken the little bits from other genres of metal that really work because they're taking that sort of you know, medieval feel from what something like Bathory might do, and then putting it into a Doom context, which fits perfectly, because they've got that whole sort of biblical tone to all of the songs, like songs about Christ and snake handles and all that sort of stuff. Like, it's this ancient, like, dark past.
0: Yeah, the the band they really put me in mind of lyrically are um, slightly less silly, but Reverend Bazaar, like, mm. they, they've got a lot of that similar similar kind of time period focus uh, or at least there's songs I can see overlap between there and also you touch on having like um, kind of influence from Bathory we know so they they released a single between the two albums Mm. which was a cover of a Mayhem song so we know they're drawing slightly from the kind of uh, you know first wave of Norwegian black metal as well and when you know that you can kind of see it in places there's just little touches which are not just this this is not a band where you can tell their favourite band is Iron Maiden yeah. and it just made that a bit heavier or something like yeah. that. This is a band where they've done kind of a very
1: old style of doom with a huge amount of modern influences. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's something that's well, for me is coming up again and again in some of the things that I think are the best metal of recent years, is that they're doing a particular thing, but they're taking loads of influence from all sorts of other bands who've done different things. But those musical ideas can apply in a different context and they've done this and they've done it so subtly that you might not notice it unless you really pay attention. And then you think, oh, well, that influence has probably come from somewhere over here. And if you know the sort of things they've done and the bands they're into, it suddenly starts to take shape how they've crafted Doom, which is, you know, just as good as any of these sort of old epic bands by bringing in these other influences.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's another album, though, I've just noticed this. Of, like, it put out on Dark Descent Records, who are mm. famed for being the label that brought all the kind of particularly disgusting sounding yeah. death metal recently. It's yet another band being essentially on the wrong label, but <laughs> I, I kind of <laughs> like it, because it it must be spreading their fan base a bit, which, I, mm. yeah, is really cool. The, the other thing they do on this album, which I wanted to mention, was that there's something that in the previous album I really enjoyed, where rather than going for harmonies, there's loads of cool interplay between the guitars where they sort of purposely miss the harmony. Like, so the two guitars will be playing, not exactly in time. There'll be notes that feel like they could have made a harmony, Mm. but slightly out of sync with each other. And their last album did this a lot. And it makes a really interesting sound. And I think it adds to that whole um, edge of it just being a bit more brutal, a bit more nasty than your average... Uh, epic Doom album.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it has an edge to it, it has a heaviness, it has that sort of thing of, you know, this is majestic and epic and all, but it's also nasty. Like, there's harsh bits to this. And that's what makes you think of, you know, the original two Candlemas albums. Like, that's what they sounded like when they were first released. Yeah, yeah. They, they were nasty as well as heavy and epic. And I think these guys get that and they found those interesting ways of getting it into their
0: sound. They also do something I love, well, in my personal opinion, uh, of saving the best riff of the album till the very ending <laughs> moments. Like, the the final track, Ruins of Fading Light, is probably my favourite of the ten on the album. And it, as I say, said before, essentially it has what I would think of as the chorus mm. right at the end of the song, <laughs> and it doesn't sort of repeat. But then, like, yeah, all the cool guitar harmonies, all the amazing stuff happens in the closing three minutes of this song. Just to leave you... I don't know. It, the album leaves you with a smile on your face. It has that thing of like just closing in the right way yeah. to make the whole experience felt feel really epic. But also, like, there's no. Uh, whereas with the previous album, I, there was like two tracks I wasn't quite as into as much. This one doesn't have that for me. Like, uh, even with a longer runtime, it's just great start to finish. Yeah,
1: and I think that is largely the dynamic nature of the songs, the way of up that songwriting, the structure of the songs, how they're so different. Each one is a complete experience that feels unique not only from the other songs on this, but from any other Doom band you might have heard.
0: another proper kind of old guard band, this time from Black Metal. This is the French band, Blue to Nord, with their 13th album, Halluc- Hallucinogen? Hallucinogen's right, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, released on Debbie Muir Multi Productions. So if you're not aware of Blue to Nord, they're a project mainly led by lead songwriter, Vince Val, who have been going for a hugely long time, sort of early 90s. They started out. And always doing kind of inventive, off the wall black metal, but just keep switching genres all the time. Mm. They kind of like, they feel to me like if Oliver just stayed a black metal band. Yeah, you know how Oliver never really sat still, even in the three black metal albums. These guys have always found a way to be inventive and weird, even in regards to what they've already done. The whole way through their career, and when I say they've done 13 albums, it's 13 albums and about 13 EPs, yeah, all of them quite inventive. I don't think there's many people who would like all of them because they're all so different to each other. Yeah,
1: it's Ulva's quite an interesting one as a comparison because while some of these other bands like Ulva or Arcturus, you know, evolved completely out of black metal and did something completely different, Aus Nord have always stayed, you know, roughly within the wheelhouse of black metal. And have done interesting things in there. You know, lots of electronic influences, lots of industrial influences. And just trying new and interesting things. And this is that, again. They've done something that's a bit weird and a bit different. So to preface this one, I remember reading an
0: interview with Inzal ahead of this album coming out, where he was saying this album was basically going to be his attempt at doing a... I think I'm remembering this right. His attempt at doing a classic rock album. Which I thought, (laughs) oh my god, this is going to be fucking dreadful and then it came out and i have no idea what the fuck he was on about
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no to me this is like a sort of it's a psychedelic journey of an album like it's very introspective and subtle it's got this hypnotic atmosphere with you know subtle vocal lines and subtle parts of other instruments which come in and give you this like ethereal texture to it it's an album that it's never gonna get you with a massive hook, but it's got these really nice melodies which you can really sort of get into the headspace of and just sort of go on a journey with it. And despite being about fifty minutes long, like it almost feels fleeting and ethereal to me. Like when I finish listening to it, it's almost like it never happened. It's this bizarre, hallucinogenic journey.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think they definitely they like sort of lent into that imagery with it. It has a lot of uh, this band's kind of signature things of not focusing that heavily on the vocals, so the vocals take quite a back seat, but have the nice variation they started introducing in the last five or so albums of there being some kind of cleans, think more in the Alsace kind of wails rather than big, bombastic, clean Mm -hmm. lines, and then more ethereal growls both of which would be, be kind of washed out and background in the mix.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're, they're sort of like when we were talking about Ulvik, Like a lot of the time you could be forgiven for not realising there were vocals going on. The cleans are much easier to pick out, but yeah. the harsh ones, with the effects on them and being so far back in the mix, they're just an additional texture, like an additional instrument that's sort of coming over the top of what's happening. And these melodic guitars are right in the centre. In parts, they really reminded me of a band like Progeny Terrestri Pura, some of these like guitar melodies they're just sort of spellbinding they really hook you in with these gradual evolutions that the songs go over it's it is a really subtle album and it took me a little bit of time to work out how much i really liked it it's funny because this one did actually grab me quite fast
0: but i think being someone who's fairly deep into this band stuff i was able to get through they have a few slight barriers to entry of they always go for a very harsh very washed out production like nothing is very front and center with blue snore mm. and everything sort of has a slight kind of fuzzy edge to it it all it all their stuff always feels slightly like it's not the most polished recording in the world they, mm. they always feel slightly like this is a capture of a live band somewhere uh, often with their folkier albums a live band somewhere off in the woods <laughs> this 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 isn't quite quite to that extent but the thing I noticed, actually, was that quote, as much as it sounds stupid, after some time, I kind of get what he means. Because <laughs> this album is actually kind of like air guitar I, I Yeah, yeah. For a black metal album, the whole album seems to revolve around the idea of having really cool lead melodies throughout almost every section. Sometimes it used to be simple tremolo passages, sometimes this would be more holding a a cool bend at the right moment. Mm. But there was, throughout the album, normally one or two guitars doing something kind of fun and melodic over a
1: more traditional black metal backing. And it's, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's it's got this persistent mood to it as well. This sort of like trance and exploration and remembering with that slight air of sort of unnerving to it, which black metal gives it. But then along with that, it's also got, every now and then it will have these like heavier palm muted riffs, which sort of sound like an old Celtic Frost riff or something like that. And yet the other instrument textures that are in there and the vocals and the chanting will like reframe that riff, almost, that it feels different. If you heard that in a band that was like Celtic Frost, it would sound heavy and aggressive. And it does at first, but then it's pulled back round to being part of this trance-like state. Yeah, And it explores lots of different emotions and feelings, but keeps them all within the same sort of idea of this hypnotic journey. I think this is why I'm a big fan of this band, actually, is because most their albums, at
0: least most of the albums of theirs, I'm really into... Have a consistent atmosphere. Mm. The atmosphere between uh, varies massively between albums. Like the Sex series is totally different to what this is. This is yeah. This is far more uplifting as well as an album. I found. Yeah. But it, as Rob was saying, the atmosphere of the 50 minutes is completely consistent. It and it it really has that great effect where you just get into it and you just go into the trance. And it, like towards the end of it, I think I've stopped noticing what's happening.
1: I'm just. I'm just enjoying the headspace it's putting yeah, me in. Yeah, you're fully sort of taken in by it. And that's so different to Deus Salutis Me, the last album in 2017, which had all of these industrial elements and was uncompromising. And like some of the songs off that, are almost genuinely scary. Yeah, Whereas this yeah. is the complete opposite. It's welcoming. It sort of invites you in. And as you say, brings you into that trance-like space. And yeah, feels uplifting. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, the previous album was more of a
0: expansion of the ideas in the sex trilogy, whereas mm. this feels like they made a more accessible version of the, uh, uh, I forget the other trilogy, the Saturnalian Poetry, um, I, oh god, I'm blanking the name of it, but the more folky one that was more mm. kind of spread out over their career. That, like, it's taken more of that and the higher focus on lead guitar. But then lead guitar, that never actually descends into self-indulgent solos. It always no. stays back at that point of like, no, here's just the right point for a couple of notes.
1: Yeah, it, all, it feels more like it's the melody of the song. It's not a solo and it's so omnipresent. It's just part of the makeup of the band. It's just taking that section. They're not really solos at all. Like, they just sort of sit there. There's a couple of sort of, like, flourishes and things like that. But other than that, there's very little showy stuff here at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, the drums throughout are your traditional black metal, for the most
0: part. is just, like, constant double-kick work. You know, some reliance on blast beats, but some stuff that does slow down a bit. But for, like, my memory of Moses' album, there's a pretty omnipresent double-kick throughout it. Yeah. But it doesn't have that overpowering modern extreme metal double kick it's not the absolute sledgehammer of it it's
1: more the distant (laughs) rumble of thunder yeah yeah exactly and it it, and uh, even the harsher bits of it when there are some blast beats in it it feels reframed by all of everything else around it it doesn't feel as aggressive it feels driving but not as intense as that would feel in any other band
0: but yeah i just i just think this is yet again the band going on a new evolutionary leap which felt interesting and really engaging and Again,
1: quite unique even for them. And creating atmosphere like no other band. Is one which I'm expecting to see on a lot of lists this year, with good reason. <laughs> this is Blood Incantation, the Hidden History of the Human Race. Um, now, Blood Incantation was formed back in, if I can read my notes, 2011 and then released Starspawn in 2016, which made everyone go, oh right, this is really interesting. This <laughs> is this is what sort of slightly technical death metal should be like. Like taking inspiration from bands like Gorguts or Dysrhythmia mm-hmm. and combining it with other things from the death metal genre to make something really interesting. And then they come along with this, which, to me, is this sort of progressive, mysterious, thematic, at the same time sort of dusty and old and nasty, but also new and fresh and with lots of new ideas into it, and blending all those different parts of death metal into one really tight under forty minutes, I think. Package. Yeah, it's just
0: it's, it's thirty-five minutes long. It's a yeah, really short album. It's
1: really sort of to the point. There is absolutely no wasted space on this. There are so many influences in it. There's the sort of Eastern influenced melodies that you find in bands like Nile or others, which fit into the sort of text of the songs really nicely. And then there's these much proggier post-rock parts like Inner Path to Outer Space, which is the first song I heard from it, and then thought this doesn't sound like death metal at all.
0: Yeah, but yeah. it
1: gradually builds up from this really groovy drum part into this like s- intricate riff, and then finally manages to get heavy at the end. There's so many influences here that have been pulled together into one package and managed to be pulled down into such a small amount of time. It's incredible. Yeah, I think there's there's like you're talking about like varying
0: influences from death metal. Like this album actually is the first time I noticed there being a bit of a Nile influence in this sound. Yeah. But there's also they've taken some of the elements of um, the old Finnish death metal scene, but made them a bit more accessible and a bit more kind of essentially competent. It's like adult musicians doing what it, you know teenagers were experimenting yeah. with back yeah. then, and then mixing that with some of the more traditional early American death metal stuff, so Mm. making it that bit more technical. And then throwing in really interesting stuff in there, like really complex fretless bass work. I believe it's a fretless throughout this album. And just other slight areas that were, you know, not the most obviously explored thing in death metal. Like, for example, releasing, as you say, a five-minute video track, which is an instrumental.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, that that isn't even death metal for most part. (laughs) With, with, on an instrumental, guest vocals from Auntie Bowman of Demolish, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no words for what he's doing. He just no, does this howl no. over the end yeah. of it. It's, yeah, really, really bizarre stuff. And much like their previous album, they were really experimental structurally. So mm. we have, it's a four-track album where you've got two normal kind of sized death metal songs, an interlude... And then a an almost twenty minute song at the end. Yeah. Whereas the previous album, I think, opened with a sixteen minute long song and then had a load of normal like death metal songs. Like Blood Incantation would just eternally play with the formula of death metal, mm. but never leave death metal. Like they're all yeah. they're always still so strictly
1: a traditional death metal band, but they're just fucking with the structure and I love it. R- right from the get-go of the song, you'll find that like both of the guitar parts are on it are playing similar but not the same thing at almost all times. Um, on Slave Species of the Gods, there are these these bits that are going on in both ears, and they're slightly different. You know, There's a pinch harmonic in a slightly different place on one of them, or they change it to a riff in a slightly different place, and it's always interesting. There's loads of little bits to unpick about it, and that makes every sort of second of it so dense with things to pay attention to, and then you've got the bass, and then you've got the drums as well. And like just the guitars, just those hooks are varying between your ears, and they'll swap parts. And it's, it's a really fascinating sort of mosaic to unpick. Yeah, and then yeah. it will all lock together into these really heavy riffs as well. So they've got an insane amount of flexibility between the different styles they can bring across, all while being death metal. I, I remember hearing um, someone talking about one of the
0: really interesting things they do, that just is the perfect way to make death metal sound good. Is at any of those moments where the drums drop out and you just get like a guitar riff going for a bit, what a normal band will do is like the guitar riff repeat once, and then everything comes in. Blood incantations move is to let half the guitar riff repeat, <laughs> then come in halfway through it, because oh, a... that sounds weird and for whatever reason that that just sounds more immediate and more aggressive. Yeah. And they they've just they've just found a few little tricks like that the way their strong songs never fit a particularly traditional structure, but they always build to something cool in the middle mm. as a hook mm. that you don't really care that you're not getting a repeating chorus or something like that because you know the really cool bit's about to drop yeah. at some point.
1: Yeah, and it's and it's got it's still got that sort of thing where there's weird time signatures, there's slightly weird instrumentation that sort of feels a little bit like taking some inspiration from Gorguts, but mm. then there's some. There's some more traditional, in a sense, death metal riffs in there. There's some strange angular riffs as well that sort of feel a bit more like later era death or something like that, with that sort of progressive end to it. Yeah, each bit of it's interesting. Like, there's not a riff on this that isn't, oh, that's that's interesting or yeah. really heavy. Like, and I think um, they're a band who really
0: get away with a shorter album well because they just fill it with really good stuff. Like, the fact it's got no bloating to it just works. Like. This would be totally ruined by having an additional two songs on the end. Like, yeah. this being yeah. this tight package, you know, I, like, there's nothing wrong with going for the Raining Blood, just over half hour structure. That, mm. If you've got mm. the riffs to fill that start to finish and keep me interested, brilliant. I, I like as well the vocal approach, despite being brutal gutturals throughout, never gets tired. No. I, like, it, it just sounds excellent the it's whole time quite, it's
1: quite varied how it's deployed as well i mean good examples like slave species of human race has got that sort of like pummeling guttural sound to it but then as we're talking about on in a past to outer space it's just that i mean it's a different vocalist but it's just that sound like the composition is different it hasn't been used as you know vocals would normally be it's been employed in a completely different way and you can hear that throughout the album vocals are used as it suits that part of the song and I think that's one of the things that stops them from being tiring. Because you're not just getting, here's the bit for the vocalist to do that guttural bit. It's like, what would fit on top of this section of the song? And despite not having, you know, the craziest variety of vocals, they always fit it to exactly what's right at that time.
0: And we mentioned this with Niall, but I really liked the idea they've gone for of having their fun lyrical gimmick throughout the mm. um, So the Am's Hidden History of the Human Race, and it's largely, and I believe the previous Am had a lot of this largely based around the vocalists' interest in sort of uh, alien conspiracy theories and so on. And they found a lot of interesting ways to explore this in death metal. I like a band having a cool gimmick. And actually, I've been saying for years about Hypocrisy being the only band that talked about aliens... I'm so glad there's another popular band doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, like so many metal bands will talk about Satanism and Warhammer and all of that sort of stuff. (laughs) Zombies And and gore. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just sort of endless. Like, this is cool. This is interesting. It feels different because you can feel it in the tone of the music. You can feel it in those slightly sort of Middle Eastern, North African scales that they've got in there in Giza Power Plant. It influences that process of creating the music because you create it with that idea in mind. So it creates something a little bit different. That even if you don't pay a shred of attention to any of the lyrical content, it's still going to sound a little bit different to a band that's doing another theme. Yeah, and, and just complete with a cover that totally fits it. Yeah. like
0: it, It's a weird album choice for an album cover, <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. really works. Yeah, yeah, I quite like it. Funnily enough, not the first death metal band to have ever used that particular no. piece of art. <laughs> I can't remember who the other one was. I mean, that's totally an accident, and it yeah. is just a funny coincidence, but yeah.
1: And, but then in then parts, they really lean into the prog. So on the final song, Awakening from the Dream of Existence of the multi-national, Multidimensional Nature of Our Reality, um, there's bits on it that, in some of these like interlude sections, these quieter moments that sound like it's out of Dark Side of the Moon. There's, like, that weird ticking... Not quite ticking noise, but, like, noise that they have on Dark Side of the Moon. But then it brings it back into death metal, and they manage that transition perfectly while having so many different riffs in it. You know, these weird, melodic death metal chords, huge, like, head-banging riffs that could fit Bolt Thrower, and then they have these, like this proggy, like, weird riffs with, like, these bizarre alien solos over the top which really fit the theme yeah. and then brings it into that final acoustic fade-out. So, like, the amount of things they've marshaled into one tiny package is amazing. Yeah, these guys are the masters of the nasty, aggressive, guitar solo.
0: Yeah, like, they are, yeah. like they're, they're not melodic at all. They just make everything <laughs>
1: more horrible and it's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it fits that idea, of that, that, like, alien sound so well
0: you Actually, you mentioned a few times sort of the Gorgut's influence. That final track really puts me in mind of something like Pleiades' Dust, mm. um, Gorgut's recent-ish EP, where it has a whole melodic not sort of melodic, but like atmospheric gap in the middle. Yeah. This song does a similar thing to joining two kind of related halves together mm. with a strange atmospheric passage. And I just like they've got that element to the sound. We've not really seen the atmospheric edge of these guys before, but they clearly are very good at writing
1: interesting ambient interlude stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's just such a tight package. There's no fat on it at all. Every bit of it's interesting, and it's combining all of those things that make death metal interesting into one.
0: us to uh, number one of the year and I think for people who know me and Rob and have heard this album this won't be a massive surprise. Uh, so this is the second album from the Ukrainian black metal band White Ward, Love Failure Exchange, uh, Love sorry, Love Exchange Failure, released on same label as Blue to Snore so definitely that, that label has got us in mind this year. Um, this, this band have been going a little while now, but what they've done that's been really interesting is evolve the sound that started off a bit more traditional black metal into being this incredibly jazz influenced black metal. Where they have actually post the release of this album, recruited a full time sax player to the band, and so what they what the album is is a very very modern take on black metal mixed with a lot of kind of weird American jazz influences to. To make an album that kind of, I don't know, I feel there's slight nods towards like bands like Death Heaven in here and a lot mm. more like modern American metal on top of older black metal and then just huge jazz influence pieces in the middle.
1: So, the really interesting thing to me about this album is it made me think about. A few of the metal bands and albums that I thought were really interesting over the last few years. So like Voices London or Imperial Triumphant that we caught this year. And the thing I was thinking about with that is in Love, Exchange, Failure, the jazz influence makes it feel like it's part of a city. And indeed, when you're at the beginning of the album, you've got these wailing sirens, which when I've got headphones on, I keep thinking there's a police car coming. Because the sound mixing's done so well on that. And it sort of struck me that most metal doesn't take place in a sort of city environment. It doesn't call that to mind. There's a lot of focus on nature, war, fantasy, science fiction. All of these different things are sort of removed from our everyday life in a city or a town or something. But this, from the get-go, it's firmly placed in an urban city context. And those themes and ideas just aren't really explored in metal that much, but we're beginning to see lots of bands doing them and exploring, you know, the ideas of how do you live surrounded by so many people but knowing so few, you know, that idea of loneliness in cities I think can be explored by metal so well, and London's a great example of that. Yeah. But yeah. the jazz influences in this and similarly in a band like Imperial Triumphant make you feel like that, because it gives you that idea of like 1920s New York or something of jazz bands. And then it emphasizes those harsher elements of that expression, that loneliness, that difficulty of adjusting with black metal, which is like the best way of bringing through that fury and that angst and that difficulty and that isolation. So I think that's a really interesting thing these guys have done, which and they've done it sort of in a way better than either of those two bands using those jazz elements that I've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, they
0: really, really have. Like, um the cover of the album is another example, much like Ulvik before, of something being so simple but yet so incredibly evocative. It's yeah. it's a picture of a cityscape where it's like kinda of mainly focused on this one kind of tower block at night but there's something about it it's one of those albums where if you sit down and listen to the album while looking at the cover mm. it has a profound effect on you that opening as Rob said with the kind of the general background noise of the city the kind of sirens and traffic noises that slowly leads into these gentle saxophone before the the initial like hit of the black metal kicks off yeah. like it just sets up this atmosphere and yeah that kind of i think you were saying the kind of loneliness of any city living mm. is a really cool theme to explore and it works so well on this album like the lyrical themes are very much in that vein as well there's a lot a lot of angst of modern life in there which fits black metal really well mm. like like it's interesting i think it was a rebellion which initially started off being far more focused on folk and so on but you know, it's rebellious music, you need to keep changing the rebellion. Yeah. So focusing on the cities now is quite an interesting take on Absolutely,
1: it. and Absolutely, and you know, jazz, when it started, was a rebellious music genre. Like, it did all sorts of weird things that nobody liked. And bringing that influence now into black metal, which is, you know, the rebellious genre within metal, is really interesting. It's got one of my favourite starts to an album for a very long time. Like, these ominous piano chords that come in. It's just... It's so unsettling in a way that I think a lot of us aren't necessarily used to in metal. Like, you know, Canon keyboards have been there but the city soundscape around it makes it feel different and just how well that's executed and then it, like, pushes you in with this, like, big drum fill and these screams and then it's right into black metal and you think... This that sort of prelude gives this black metal such a different tone than it would have had otherwise. I think what they really nail as well is the integration of the keyboards and saxophone with the
0: extreme metal. Because the like the extreme metal passages we've not really got into, they they are properly brutal. They mm. have like that really front and centre drum production where you know the the kicks are really amplified yeah. and all the guitars have that very modern chunk to them. But yet the saxophone and keyboards still find its place in there, and and these moves seem seamless. Like that yeah. when the black metal comes in after that initial intro, it's not a surprise as much as it just works. It was a cool yeah. transition, yeah. but it wasn't it wasn't a shock to the system. Or yeah, it, it, it's the, the saxophone is integrated like in an album like Eshon's After, where it feels totally appropriate sitting over this kind of more modern extreme metal riffing.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, definitely. And the the bass and drums are really cool as well. Like there's some really nice grooves in the rhythm section. On um Surfaces and Depths, there's just these really cool interlocking passages between them. It's not it's not just doing that black metal thing. There's other influences there as well. It's got that jazz bit and then there's these cool grooves which you wouldn't which you'd expect to find in a more weird black metal band like Voices or something. Mm. But you wouldn't expect to find in a more traditional black metal band. And that integrates so well, because it keeps things feeling fresh. You know, when you've got those harsh black metal bits, that omnipresent sax, and then it will go into these like slightly weird but groovy sections, which can still feel heavy, but feel distinct from the traditional black metal sections. Yeah, yeah. And stuff that is is quite alien to this genre. So the opening track, Love, Exchange,
0: Failure, um, towards the end of the song, we get a proper, like, melodic, Like I guess, like a thrash metal solo, (laughs) right? There's a properly great bit of lead guitar, which is not what you expect in this genre, but it fits so well. And as Rob mentioned, the bass works really impressive, despite the fact the bass player is also the lead vocalist. And it's there's loads of passages where the bass is doing something really interesting while the vocals are happening, particularly on the closer "Uncanny Delusions." There's Mm. loads where the bass adds like these interesting slides and so on to
1: fill out gaps between chords and so on. Yeah, it's a really impressive album. Yeah, it's it, there's so much sort of dexterity and finesse to it in that how they will transition between these sections and how they weave the whole thing together. And the production as well is super clean. Like, the drums sound like jazz drums. They do not sound like metal drums at all. And I think at first when I was hearing, like, blast beats on them, I was like, you're playing the wrong kit. That doesn't <laughs> make sense. Like, that sound is from a jazz drummer's kit, not a metal drummer's kit. But then, as I started to get used to it, I think that like precision to it works. Like it's got that production that puts it up there and allows it to carry that emphasis to it. But like the snare doesn't sound like a metal snare, but actually that really works.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the the other thing is the saxophone is kind of omnipresent on this album. It's not on every single riff, but I believe it's on every track at least, yeah. or or as near as makes no difference. And the way they keep finding a good reason to bring that back, it never feels gimmicky, it feels mm. very integrated with the sound. I mean, in, in a way, not entirely unlike um, that Reels and Nile album a few years yeah. back, yeah. Like where it was just like, that's a really interesting way of dropping that into an album like this. Yeah. It, it's that style of sax, actually, I forgot to mention it. It doesn't have the kind of Jürgen from Shining thing of being quite aggressive at points. This sax mm. is entirely your kind of melodic jazz. This is not... Uh, John Zorn kind of (laughs) experimental (laughs) jazz
1: yeah and it's the structures are cool as well because it rarely repeats segments or riffs like it's always a sort of journey and even when there are sections that repeat you'll have drum grooves that are changing underneath to like bring out new characters of it so it's always presenting you with something slightly different and new throughout the album. Well, like for example, there's a couple
0: of guest vocalists that appear in the final tracks, so getting mm. some very some clean like low pitch male vocals, and then uh, surfaces and depths is entirely led by a female singer. And so there's just there's always a little variation, something something to surprise you as the album goes on. And like say uncanny illusions, the final track. Again, like a few of these other albums, saves a load of the best riffs for the end. That
1: song is just—it's twelve minutes, just chock full of really cool metal riffs. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, And that's one of those other things is that you might think of an album like this that it could get too sort of, I guess, get very sort of introspective and atmospheric. But there's still great riffs in this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's still got loads of that in there, but just integrates it into that whole like sonic idea of an urban environment. Yeah, I, I think there's there's two or three moments so I can think of, like,
0: big like three-minute sections which are, like, proper head-banging moments. Mm. Like, the whole of the second track, uh, Poisonous Flowers and Violence, has loads of them in it, and that final song as well has lots of them. But whereas you get these other incredibly dark, very just bleak, sad moments in mm. other places, which are quite at odds. Which it's just, the whole thing is... I think, as well, the lyrics sort of focus on this. There's a lot about... The primary characters' like mental states, so you get a lot of varied emotions, but mm. they're smoothly integrated. You can you can follow this
1: journey between the songs. It's
0: very yeah. impressive,
1: and I think there, like the vocal style of black metal, fits so perfectly, like. It gets that pure shriek of agony that no other genre can quite match with that sort of vocal style. And then with the sort of emotion is carried by these, you know, fairly simplistic but super emotionally charged guitar melodies as well on top of these riffs. Yeah, so like, yeah. it, there's so many textures that it can use to carry those emotions through it in so many different ways. And black metal is such a good way of exploring this kind of, you know, emotion and setting. Yeah, yeah. And then and the uh, Andre the vocalist is just a really solid black metal
0: front mm. man. Like, he sounds great put that front and centre in the mix. Like, yeah, I, I was incredibly impressed by this. Um, you're relatively new to this, album, so I assume you haven't gone back and heard the previous no, one. No, I haven't listened to the previous one. So, so uh, like, it's funny because I showed this to my girlfriend and... She listened to it and the previous album back to back, and for initially the previous album was way better because the previous album is far more of a traditional riff-driven mm. black metal album. But like sort of listening to the two of them now, I I definitely think this is the superior one because it's just the huge evolution. The previous album had some prog elements, had some some stranger ideas they were introducing, but was way more traditional. Whereas this one feels so new and focused in such a unique way. Yeah, I I was sort of I was
1: incredibly blown away by it on first listen because I just couldn't I couldn't believe they'd pulled it off
0: quite this well. Yeah,
1: Yeah, from the start where it is this ominous build-up of pianos and brushes on drums and you think, Wow, what's this gonna do? And then it brings you into black metal and you're like, can you actually maintain this for a full, you know, like 50-minute album? And they somehow managed to while still throwing new things at you and just building up this texture and this environment even more and more. Uh, Yeah, it's a phenomenal achievement and takes metal in a really interesting direction that people have, I think, played about with, but this is really realising it in a very real way. And I think this will be an album that we'll still talk about in 10 or 20 years' time. And I really hope that people take note of it and take some of these influences and look at other ideas you can explore with metal and other influences from musical genres you can not just take in, but incorporate and embed into metal. Because I think what's happening
0: is, like you mentioned with Imperial Triumph, and jazz is finally getting its claws into black metal in a bigger way now. And I think this (laughs) is where we might see the next great evolutionary leap in black metal, much like it sort of helped death metal along back in the sort of early 90s when some of the more traditional stuff was getting a bit stale. And then you had bands like Atheist and Cynic change the game again. So... Hopefully, White Ward will be at the forefront of this, and so far, the reaction I've seen to this album has been universally very positive. Yeah, but yeah, so um, yeah, that's our our top ten of the year. Um, you've already heard like our honourable mention show, but there, there's so many cool things put out this year. Hit us up with all the ones we missed because, as always, early January is when I do shopping for. All the great albums that totally passed me by, or didn't have time to listen to. Yeah, it's,
1: it's always a nice thing to do. Sort of as you're entering the new year, is go back and check out some of those things you missed, and you don't have any pressure to include it on a list. It's just going back and being like, right, I missed this. This is yeah, where you
0: go. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah, let us know the ones uh like all the ones we've not listed of yours that you you really enjoyed. Let us know the ones on here you think you disagree with as well. Like if you think we've you know massively oversold one of them like possibly you didn't think Niles was returned return to form <laughs> or something like that I mean, yeah it'd be interested to hear that so hit us up um, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter or Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com if you want to get in touch and as always yeah if you could write a review for us on iTunes that would be amazing but yeah thanks a lot for listening